So I'm speaking to John Bell. This is our third interview. And I'd just like to start by talking about how the whole pandemic experience impacted you personally. Um, I mean, first of all, you had presumably, I know you had lots of other responsibilities, but you also had a lab research program going. What happened to that? Well, so, so, so actually the truth is I, I, I have the odd graduate student literature here or there, but I don't run a big lab. So it meant it was easier for me n not to be engaged in direct research myself, but to be sitting in the middle trying to mix this with that. So that, that was sort of where that ended up. Um, and was your lab doing any COVID research? No, 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 no. I, I, so, I, yeah, m my lab is pretty distributed. So I've got a graduate student. Because I get other people to take graduate students that I co-supervise. Right. Because I spend so much time in London. Yeah. I can't really yeah. run. It's the same reason I gave up clinical work right. 10 years ago. Was mm. that I couldn't, I can't, can't be in London talking to a minister when somebody rings up because one of my patients is dying, so I, I couldn't do that. So, so, so I, I spend quite a bit of time milling around, helping stuff happen strategically, getting the right people to talk to each other, but also setting strategies as to what needs to happen and finding people to get that stuff done. So, so I, it, that, this wasn't a change. I, I do that, that's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, yes. And so this was not a change yeah, in that yeah. at all. The, 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 thing, the, the only thing that changed was the pace at which that kind of activity was required. And it started with a lot of discussions between myself and Jeremy Farrow at the Wellcome Trust, Trevor Mundell at Gates Foundation, you know, the people who I interact with at a senior level in those organizations, thinking about whether this was going to be a pandemic or not. So January 2020, mm. actually even December 2019, you know, what is it, what's going to happen, can we anticipate where it's going to go, and what's the UK doing to mm -hmm. sort it out? And I think we, through, through January for sure, we were all a bit frustrated because there didn't seem to be any, there didn't seem to be any response mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind of damping down, nobody should worry, it's not going to get here, it's not going to be a pandemic, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And so that, that kind of rumbled on until two things happened. One was the outbreak in Italy, which then tore through Lombardy and collapsed their healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the first initial sentinel cases in the UK, which were the couple, the Chinese couple went to York mm. and the guys who'd been on a skiing holiday in Austria or something that came mm, back to mm, Brighton. Mm. So they were the first sentinel kids because yeah, they had yeah. real COVID. I think we covered yeah, most of that yeah, in the yeah, first interview. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm really trying to get at the impact on you personally. So you said the pace increased. So did the, the, I mean, one question I've just been asking everybody is, did your working hours increase? I mean, I'm sure you're somebody who works every hour there is anyway, but did you find yourself? Well, I was pretty busy up to, so you could see the lockdown company coming and I was pretty busy up to the lockdown particularly thinking about things like testing capacity. Yeah. I locked down, oh, actually, I actually locked down a week before the official lockdown because we decided just to get the kids home and lock down at home. Yeah. But then the pace of stuff really escalated through that period of the initial weeks of the lockdown because you could see that you could see the... Um, 
you could see the pace of the pandemic really picking up in front of our eyes. And you could also see the impact of the lack of preparedness that was starting to happen. So I would start the morning with a call with Lord Bethel, who was the junior minister. He was the Lord's minister in the Department of Health who was responsible for testing and the pandemic testing response. And uh, I would spend half an hour to 45 minutes with him every morning talking about what, what time? Seven o'clock, yeah. So I would be up and on the phone, crack it on. And we did that throughout the whole of the first year. And all through the summer, you know, we were just boom, boom, boom. And we got to be quite good friends, actually. I still know him pretty well. And, and in fairness to him, he did a really good job. I knew Matt Hancock, because of course I advised Matt about life sciences before, so I was involved in lots of things with Matt. He brought me into lots of discussions. And Will War, who is one of my graduate students, was in number 10. So Will, of course, when they didn't know what to do in number 10, would pick up the phone to me and say, what do we do next? So that dragged me into a whole set of different strands of activity. So my day would be involved in having meetings about the vac vaccine, having meetings about serological testing and ELISA tests, having meetings about the Lighthouse Labs, which is, you know, we set up, and then ultimately lateral flow testing. A little bit about clinical trials, although that was really being done on its own. But I, I got in April, May, and did a lot of work on clinical trials, which ended up going nowhere, frankly. Um, but the, um, but that, so that was it. And so I would start the morning and it would be one meeting after another. There'd be a lot of people who want, as, as I guess after a month or two, people wanted to hear what I thought was happening because there was a massive gap in information distribution. Um, I think the, the general populace and indeed different organizations didn't trust the government because they made such a hash of it at the beginning. And as a result, they wanted somebody independent to talk to them. So there was a lot of pressure from the press to be on the TV and on the radio. And that wasn't something that was new to you. I mean, you had done that kind of thing uh, I'd done that stuff. I'd done that stuff before, but I'd never done it at this pace, I have to say. And, and I'd also never been... I mean, these were, everybody listened to these things. I mean, the stuff I did before, somebody might have heard you, but they went, oh, it's bloody bell again. But this time, you know, you knew if you were on Radio 4, there, you know, the whole bloody country had that radio on. <laughs> so there, it was, there was quite a bit of pressure. And I, it was interesting, because the government tried to stop me from doing that initially. They, they said, no, 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 you can't talk to the press. And then the, the, the press kept, ringing me up saying you got to talk to us. I said well I can't I can't and they said well don't be so bloody ridiculous and I said they don't pay your salary you can talk to us if you want so in the end after the third request to go on the Today program which had been denied by the the guys in DHSC I said well screw this so I went on and of course it was a big success but I thought it was terrific and then Matt Hancock called me and said oh my god he said that was terrific blah 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 so I said well do you mind Matt if I do this from time to time because <laughs> it might take the pressure off you guys because when you get on, they ask you very different things than when I get on. So it actually helps cool the thing down. And at that stage, I was telling people, the testing was a mess. We're fixing it. We're on a trajectory. It's going to be fine. Everybody stay calm. Put your seatbelts on. It'll all be okay. So that, so anyway, that, you know, I, it was up to a couple of times a week because I was on Channel 4. I did a lot of stuff for ITV. I did, I did breakfast, TV, I, yeah, I did all that stuff, radio programs, new, uh, World at One, all that stuff. So I got to be a sort of fairly familiar figure 
in the press. And I think the, if you analyze why that was, I tried very much to keep it simple and be positive because the truth is none of us knew where this was all going. So if you don't know, then there's no harm in painting a slightly brighter picture than lots of other people are going, oh my God, the world was going to end. And I, I, that was not my approach. It turned out I was right and they were completely wrong. So that, that was sort of helpful. But it was, I, I almost invariably had stuff going into the evening. My, my family was at home and they were busy. The kids were trying to get some university work done and I was bloody hopeless. Um, and my wife had her own things that she had to do because she runs a lab and she was trying to keep that ticking along. So we had computers and Zoom calls from, I had a little study which I worked in and she worked out in the kitchen and the kids were up in their bedroom so there was stuff going on all the time. And then we would occasionally cross in the day and the kids would always be interested and say, what's happening today, da 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 da. And then that would go, then I would usually try and break for dinner but sometimes I couldn't because I was on a North American call for example, that wasn't gonna work. Uh, so. I would probably normally come off the Zoom call or come off what I was doing because I was also trying to read a lot of papers to keep up to date with what people were seeing and talk to you know key opinion leaders who knew what they were talking about. So talking to George Gow, to Jeremy, Trevor, the people who actually knew what was happening in their own jurisdictions. So I would usually pack up about 10 o'clock. I didn't usually go beyond 10, but it was sort of seven to 10 with the odd break in the day. And I usually tried to break for dinner, although I occasionally had dinner in front of the Zoom call. And how did that affect your well-being? I mean, some people thrive on adrenaline and some people... No, I was good. Yeah. I was good. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty busy guy anyway, but it's very... I mean, you have to understand, and I don't want this to be interpreted in the wrong way, but if you're a biomedical scientist slash immunologist then this you know the chance of this happening in your career is tiny and the chance of this happening in your career when you're at the top of the tree so you can actually get stuff done is even smaller so you know I was I was in this position of significant authority and strategic um, uh, I wouldn't say strategic control, but, but with an oversight of a lot of strategic decisions, which, which was amazing because then you, you had to make decisions. And something I've learned, because I do a lot of work with industry, is that, and this is something academics are not very good at, is the most important thing is to make a decision. It's not to think about the decision for too long, it's to make a decision. And you have to accept that provided at least half the decisions you make are the right ones, you'll be fine. And that's so, you know, that was the attitude I took into this is, let's just make some decisions. If it's not working, we'll stop, we'll do something else. And so we could navigate this thing one way or another. And, and not all the decisions we took were the right ones, for sure. But that, that, that was, it was in a curious way rather exhilarating because every day you had a whole set of very, very big decisions that had to be taken or to which you could contribute a view and that was, yeah, that was good. So I, that was fine. I didn't, I didn't have sleepless nights. I went to bed, I slept, got up early in the morning. I'd, I ran every day. 
at the beginning, I'd, I'd like to skull, but I didn't skull because I was worried about stuff being in the river water because there was, there were, you know, the storage about sort of the sewage and the, the virus. So, but I used to run every day, so I was, you know, stayed pretty fit, and that helped me kind of get through the day and through the night. So, so it was, yeah, it was good. That went on absolutely flat out to the summer. Uh, and then, as you remember, the pandemic largely went away and people started to go on vacations and all that sort of stuff. The, the family took a short break in. Uh, my in-laws are live in Swanage. They're very old and pretty frail, so I thought, oh, bloody hell, we better get down there. So we went down there for a week. Um, but that was the only break we had that summer. And, and the rest of the time we were kind of pretty flat out. And then, then that carried on um, through the autumn, because by then I was very engaged in the lateral flow testing program, which was lit really literally three or four times a week. Lots of discussions important down, lots of evaluation data that was coming in from that program. And again, that kept was very busy. And of course, the vaccine thing got pretty interesting starting in about September, because we were counting cases as to how many events we needed. And and then the results from Pfizer came in, I guess, end of October, beginning of November. So that was the first hit. And we thought, bloody hell, this is a tractable disease with a vaccine. So we were pretty optimistic we were going to get there. And our data came in in November. Then there was a rush around Christmas to get regulatory approval. And there was quite a lot of discussion with AstraZeneca. So I probably talked to AstraZeneca a couple of times a week um, about where we were and what we were trying to do. They were they were busy fighting off all kinds of trouble in the in the U.S. because the U.S. decided that they didn't like us, so that was not helpful. And I was also, yeah, we, we were also thinking, trying to think more strategically, as if it worked, how would you how would you get the vaccine out to people as quickly as possibly could? So that I, I was also talking to Oxford Biomedica, where I know the chairman pretty well and the chief executive, because they were our major manufacturing site. And they, they had all kinds of trouble making the stuff in the autumn. And so I was trying to help them get to where they needed to get to. So anyway, so it was busy, busy, busy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And did you, I mean, you, you just made that mention about the possible contamination of water. water. Um, how personally threatened did you feel by the virus itself? So I, I like everybody else, you know, I didn't, I really didn't want to die in an intensive care unit face down. And, you know, there were enough people dying face down in those days because there was, you know, there's quite a surge of, of this terrible pneumonia people got. And so I and was... And you were over 60. And I was <laughs> definitely over 60. So, you know, that, so that, you know, I was in a... Now, one of, my BMI is quite low. My BMI is 21. And there's a, this remarkable correlation with BMI. So I thought, oh, that's probably right. I'm pretty fit. But... You know, my wife was really anxious, so, you know, we were getting deliveries of groceries to the door, and then everything was getting wiped down before it came in the door. Because, and, and this just re-emphasizes the point I made, and that is, we, we started with a massive set of misassumptions about how this was. Because everybody said, oh my God, wash your hands. There's not a scrap of evidence that this stuff is transmitted by touch. And yet, we went through months and months of everybody washing their hands four times a day, Huge amounts of alcohol, gel, stuff being wiped down. Anyway, the, um, it just goes to show you that you know you don't really 
I mean, I'm not saying it was inappropriate precautions, they probably were appropriate, but we could have worked faster to get the answer to that question that would have saved everybody a lot of hoo-ha. Anyway, the, the yeah, so, so my wife was pretty aggressive about controlling what came in and out of the house and that out of that, and it, it meant that I couldn't really meet with anybody. So I didn't meet with anybody face to face from about the second week of March until the lockdown ended in May or June. So, you know, it was, cause, so I, I didn't go up to Whitehall and all that stuff. That people asked me to come up and I said, nah, no way I'm doing that. Because of course Whitehall was a, a wash with the virus and they were all getting it. And I thought, bloody hell, I'm not going in there. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, so that was fine. Because you could do everything on the, on the, mm. on the Zoom calls, which mm. was fine. So, mm. so that, anyway, that, so busy, 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 but yep. not, you know, tiring to a point, but at some level, pretty interesting work and challenging work because every some point I've made before, I've made said this to you before, but almost every week something popped up and you learn something about this virus that we didn't know before. It's a brand new virus. Didn't know anything about it to start with. So there's stuff. Well, did you know? Or did you know? Or did you? Bloody hell! Didn't know that. Did you know half the people are asymptomatic? Well, no, we didn't know that. And, you know, the ONS study we got started in April, I guess mid-April, end of April, and that started to generate epidemiological data saying, ah, did you know these people are at particular risk, these people are not at risk, you know, we're not seeing any of this, we're seeing a lot of that. And so, you know, that data was coming in all the time and I was trying to assimilate all that data, try and keep up the big picture of what actually was happening and then how you needed to respond to that. But it was... That that was that was very intriguing because it was just an ongoing um, flow of new information. Well, that brings us, I think, quite nicely to this. Going back to this statement that you made to the select committee, and I'm afraid I, I haven't got the date for that, uh, but it was quite early on, I think, that um, uh, this whole epidemic has relied too heavily on assumptions that have turned out not to be true. My strong advice is to prepare for the worst. So that must have been quite early on. <laughs> <laughs> but what were these assumptions? That well, the, the first assumption was it wasn't going to be a pandemic, right? Which was a dumb assumption, and and that, but that was clearly in people's minds. The second assumption is don't worry, the NHS is great and it'll all be fine. That was a dumb assumption. Turned out to be completely not true. The third assumption, sequentially, was that you can start trying to make a vaccine, but it's going to take at least three years to get there. So get yourself ready for a long haul. Turned out not to be true. Fourth assumption, how's the, vaccine, how's the virus transmitted? That we still don't know. And it's unbelievable we don't know that, but we still don't know that. I mean, it's obviously aerosol, but is it really aerosol? Is it particulates? Do the, how, much, how well do the masks work? You know, they probably work a bit, but they're not, they don't work anywhere near as well as everybody thought they might have worked. Um, and then this massive assumption that if you'd had the virus, you could just go back to work because you were then immune and you weren't going to get the virus again. And that underpinned the search for a serological test to see who'd had the virus and who hadn't had the virus. And the assumption was after that first wave or midway through the first wave that, you know, half the population will have been exposed. Turned out only 5% of the population had been exposed. So that was a bit of a disaster. So that just showed that this was going to be a long grind 
Because, you know, after that first big wave, I don't think anybody expected 5%. Although, interestingly, the Chinese, after the Wuhan wave, they were only 5% as well. So it was... It they was, had incredibly severe lockdown. They had a massive lockdown, but they also had lots and lots of sick people. Do you remember they were building those hospitals in a week? And I thought, boy, oh boy, they got a problem. And so when the first data came out, actually, George, it was one of George's papers, but it's, you know, it was 5 6%. That was all it was. So, so that, all, all, that was, all that was a problem. And then, then we sort of paused. So it took a while for everybody to understand that this was an immunological problem, not a virological problem. It could be any virus, but the real question, what's the immune response? Because that's the thing that, that's what vaccines do, that's what protects us. Blah, blah, blah. And so we started with the view that the antibodies, if you had antibodies to the virus, they would protect you against being reinfected. And it turned out that was not true. So we've all got antibodies and we're still all getting infected. So that, you know, that is, that turned out a completely inappropriate conclusion. Uh, and although antibodies are a reflection about whether you've been exposed to the virus, they're not sure, it wasn't clear that they protected you. Did um, they protect you from severe disease, do they? Probably not the antibodies. Oh, it's right. probably the T cells that okay. protect you against severe disease. Because there isn't a very good correlation between the presence of antibodies and the presence of severe disease. So for example, there are lots of people who have very low levels of antibodies, but who still don't get severe disease. And that, so that's probably, and, and the, the severe disease is different than transmitting and getting a head cold. So, so we, we hadn't, nobody had thought about that and thought about, well, actually, it may well be that you could protect yourself against the worst effects, but still have trouble in the background of the thing flipping along. And remember, we were globally a completely naive population. So immunologically, none of us had seen this virus before, which is quite an interesting problem because with flu, We've all kind of seen flu of one sort or another, and then you get a flu epidemic here, and some are worse and some are better. So, so that, that was all completely brand new. And so the understanding of what you were going to need to see the end of the pandemic was also very muddled. And I remember there were lots of authorities who would get on and say, well, we've got to vaccinate everybody and then we'll eliminate the virus and then, you know, we've got to have zero COVID. That's the only end to this. And I, I, I remember I got on the radio and I said, you've got to be bloody joking. I said, that is never, never, never going to happen. So get that out of your minds because it's going to be here forever. So get used to it. And lots of people didn't like that. But of course, it turns out, it turned out to be completely true that, you know, it, it is what it is. It's now with us and it'll be with us forever and it'll be really impossible to get rid of it. The, the other thing is that was a, an inappropriate misassumption, which I, in fairness, I got wrong in the beginning because people started to sequence a bit and they didn't start to sequence looking for variants. They started to sequence to use it for clinical epidemiology in hospital. In other words, that guy had that particular virus and the guy on level seven got the same virus. So they must have, it must have gone from here to here. But the honest truth didn't really help very much because usually when there was a ward of people with COVID, they all had the same virus because they'd given it to each other. So that was, you know, that all looked a bit dumb to me. So, so I remember the Department of Health called me up and they said, what do you think about this? I said, I think it's a load of noise. I said, I, said, I wouldn't pay much attention to it because it's not going to help you very much. 
it then emerged that the variants started to appear, and then it was pretty clear that you were going to need surveillance, genetic surveillance as well. But again, we didn't start out with genetic surveillance at all. We, we, we in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, and although we were one of the first in the world to do genetic surveillance, the whole world was asleep at the switch because they should have started with that on day one, frankly. So there were lots of, I mean, the thing was a mess. But I, I do remind people that we'd never done this before. This was a new virus, we'd never done it before. And we didn't have very many people who were expert at managing infectious disease outbreaks. Uh, Ebola was the last one. We had a few people who were involved in that, that had similar characteristics. And then there'd been flu, which had never really got airborne. Um, they got off the runway. Uh, and, and actually turned out to be much less severe than we thought it was going to be. So there hadn't been anything in living memory where people got really good at this. And I think that lack of experience and lack of capacity and capability is, was a really big issue for us. And it was made even worse by the fact that we had to make a lot of assumptions and a lot of those assumptions were, turned out to be wrong. The modeling turned out to be particularly wrong, I have to say, and that was a that was a massive source of misinformation that carried on throughout the pandemic. Well, there were different models, weren't there? And that that was another question that that I had. That, that you know, even within the scientific community, there have been differences of opinion based on these different massive, models. Massive differences. How of how difficult was that to to deal with? Well, it was very difficult to deal with, and I think the particular problem was that. Politicians who were terrified of making yet another mistake tended to take the most conservative view uh, about the models. And, and, and the academics, and SAGE in particular, promoted the, the end is near type modeling. And unfortunately, there's been quite a lot about that around for a very long time in the infectious disease modeling community. So they have always always overstated the severity of these epidemics, the extent of the, uh, the spread, the severity of the outcome. And they did it in spades here because you, you might well have argued that as the population got vaccinated in 2021, through that first six months of 2021, to the point but, but at the summer of 2021, almost, not everybody, but most people wanted a vaccine and had two doses of vaccine, it was all fine. They could have just stopped then. Because I don't, you know, the lockdowns didn't make any difference after that. The death rate stayed absolutely the same, with or without boosters, with or without variants, with or without everything, right along the bottom. And yet we kept going on for another nine months saying, oh my God, we need a lockdown, and the government was running around. That was... That's been very damaging to the scientific community's credibility, frankly, because politicians are now saying, why do we listen to those guys? They clearly got it completely wrong, and we just laid there and let them tell us what to do, when in fact, if we'd had people in the room saying, you know, the economy's on its knees, sort yourselves out, get back to work, we would have actually got to a much better place faster. And but I'm there, sorry to say it's true. There were scientists, including scientists here in Oxford, who were saying lockdowns were a bad thing and that what we needed to do was focus um, the, the, the protection on the extremely vulnerable. 
and that everybody else would be fine. Yeah. And they were vilified, largely. Yeah, they were, that, that, that was a bad period, actually, because I think that was a... I think at the beginning, that was probably... If I look retrospectively, that was probably not the right advice because the consequences of severe disease were pretty profound. And the worry was that if the health system collapses, which is what happened in Italy, then we're all toast. So the, I think the lockdown was prob, and I say probably, this gets back to our assumptions, I'm still not sure we've got the data to show that it actually made a difference, frankly. But I think it was the right thing to do given the, the threat. But the March, once the March lockdown, that's right. The first one, yeah. But but as soon as as soon as the the disease became different because of widespread vaccination or previous exposure, then you could have easily said, no, 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 no. We, you know, by all means, if you've got frail elderly people who you think are at risk, then protect them. But the rest of the country could definitely get back to work and get stuff done, and that didn't happen with any pace at all. It was very slow because we'd been in this lockdown mentality. Now, I'll tell you a couple of things about lockdown. So we were, the manual for pandemic management, two meters distancing, mask, blah, blah, is all 19th century. And there's been a spectacular failure to gain evidence and an evidence base as to what works and what doesn't work. And the example I like the best is in Africa, where they had, they couldn't do any lockdowns, because if you lock down in Africa, people starve to death, because they've got to go out and do stuff, otherwise they can't get any food. So they didn't, they, South Africa did a brief lockdown, and they said, forget this, we're not doing this, everybody's going to die. So they let everybody else, and none of the other African countries had any significant lockdowns. Big urban areas, lots of transmission, all that stuff. And before they could ever get a vaccine, they, most of those countries had auto-vaccinated themselves with natural infection. They had serological rates of infection were sitting at 70 to 80% before anybody had had a vaccine. So they'd actually done the vaccine thing themselves without any help from the, from the injectables. But they had these very interesting waves of disease which go along like our waves. Suddenly you'd see, oh my God, we got another wave. The numbers are going through the roof. And then they get up to a peak, and then no intervention, no lockdown, no masks, no nothing, no washing of hands, it would disappear. It's exactly what happened here. So how do you infer that the lockdown was responsible for that? When people who didn't have the lockdown also had the, the waves. So it's a natural feature of these infections is you get to a certain level of transmission and then enough people are either actively infected or have been infected that it actually disappears. Mm. And how were the death rates in those African countries? So that, nobody, nobody really us, knows. In some places, the death rate was pretty high. In South Africa, there were a lot of people who died. Mm. Places like Nigeria, it's been said that there hadn't been a lot of deaths. I don't know that the ascertainment is very good no. there. So I don't. But think they do know. have an average younger population. As They're well, younger and fitter, but there's no shortage of people with you know, who are obese, who are in a high-risk group. So, you know, it's not as if they don't have any of those people, well, quite a lot of those people. But the, the, I think the sense from Africa is that they didn't get clobbered the way that we did in Western countries. 
but it's very, until you actually, unless you had really good numbers, I think it'd be really hard to tell about that, to be honest. But that, I, and then in America, there's been quite a lot of work looking state to state, because states had different approaches to how tough to be. And there doesn't seem to be a very good correlation between the death rates, where the death rate count in America is pretty good, so the ascertainment, the numbers are pretty good. And the extent and breadth of the um, non-pharmaceutical interventions don't correlate with the death rate at all. So I still think there's some pretty big questions about whether the 19th century manual about lockdowns is the right answer, frankly. And that, now, when things were bad, and I was asked, well, do you think we need a, I, I would often say, yeah, I think we probably will need another lockdown. As things got better in the spring, I started to back away from that position because I wasn't persuaded that spring of 2021. I wasn't persuaded that was necessary. And then by the time we got to, you know, November, December, I was pretty vocal about saying, what the hell's going on here, guys? Because this is a mild, now a mild disease. People are not dying. You know, what's going on? And I mean, there were a couple of us who put that into play before Christmas in 2021, where the government had been pushed by the scientific community to do another lockdown. But there were a few of us who said, no, 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 don't do it. And then when they looked at the numbers, they thought, actually, we're not doing a lockdown. Everybody go home and have mince pies and turkey and enjoy yourselves. It's all fine. So that was sort of when they broke the back of the orthodoxy of the modelers. And to be clear, Chris Murray, who's one of the great, world's great modelers based in the in University of Washington um, in Seattle, I spoke to him for, I spoke to him quite a lot. He was doing numbers, he had great numbers. And he says, funny JB, he said, your modelers in the UK seem to come up with compl completely different answers to what everybody else does over here. I thought, oh shit, that's not such a good bit of information. So, so there's massive variation and they overstated the extremes, the you know the worst extremes, and yeah, it was it was bad actually. Mm -hmm. It was bad. And I mean, how do you evaluate the impact of there just being a lot of sickness? I mean, just you know, not severe illness, but people feeling ill enough not to feel able to go to work. Well, I, I look. There, there was always going to be quite a lot of impact of that. In fact, there still is the. We're going up again. The, the, yeah, that's, that's, so the early summer there were quite a lot of people down and it meant that the airports didn't work because lots of people had COVID. And, uh, but a lot of that was probably, again, if you've tested positive, don't come to work. So there's, there's a, and you can say, well, look, I feel fine, I got a bit of a cough. And they say, no, no, it work. So you, you actually, you know, there's a, again, a, this question, what is the tipping point between yeah. Ooh, you keep out of the workforce if you don't. I, we're going to go up again. We'll have a we'll have an autumn surge for sure, I think. But it's not clear to me the booster is going to make any difference. I'm a bit of a skeptic. So that yeah, that. that was a question I had really from a personal point of view. I mean, if you had the first two vaccinations, are you covered for life against severe disease? So far, it looks like that. It does look like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, how can I say that? Because we're only two we years know. out. But <laughs> yeah. to date. That's enough. Yes. 
because none of those people are dying from severe disease. So would a booster keep you going longer? Well, it might, but it also might not. And we, you know, unfortunately, in the rollout of the vaccines, we didn't do it in a very careful way. We were in such a hurry to get vaccines into people. We just had everybody line up, we'll give them all a vaccine. In America, they didn't even record who had a vaccine. They just wrote it on a card and said, off you go. So, I mean, it was not that because they, they, there was a push here from Rory Collins to say, actually guys, why don't we randomize, give people different vaccines, different age groups, do large populations. Then as we go forward, we can then use those populations to work out what's happening and how it's happening. But we didn't do that, we just said blast away. So it was what it was. I, yeah. Um, anyway, the, so we, we're, we're still got massive gaps in our understanding of the biology of this disease, the immune response to this disease, what protects you against transmissions, do the boosters actually work or not? Um, what, what do you make of this waning of antibody response after? Because of course, the, the, the more boosters you get, the faster the antibody response wanes. So now the antibodies last three months. Well, really? So why are you having the booster then? It doesn't seem to do a lot of good. So, but there, again, there's a sort of orthodoxy. So all governments feel like they have to be jabbing people right and left, but, and they've got in this muddle in the States where they, they've approved a vaccine which has never been into a human being before. So, I mean, that's just completely dumb. Because you don't need to do that. I mean, human studies take a month, so what's a big deal? So, yeah. so they, there's a lot of bad decisions ongoing in this community. So. But I've decided to step out of that discussion, actually. So I'm, you don't hear me on the radio anymore. I've decided, oh, God, this is a mess. It's just going to get worse. So, just. so you've, you've stepped back from all advisory roles in relation to COVID? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I mean, I, did, I, I, I kind of I did the job I was supposed to do. Yes, we, yes. we got rid of the severe disease. We got the vaccine. We got the testing in place. We did all the things we said we were going to do. And now it's just a load of heavily opinionated people shouting at each other as to what to do next. Uh, I mean, it's just not worth it. Actually. Oh, well, I, I was going to ask you <laughs> whether the experience of the pandemic had raised the profile of the need for pandemic preparedness and whether we now have the capacity in place to deal with a future pandemic that might yeah, come yeah, in five yeah, years or 10 years or 20 no, years. No, no, it's a really good question. So, so the, in the height of the pandemic, everybody said, this is costing us trillions of pounds we need to we need to be ready the next time, uh, and that when there was quite a lot of sickness around, people kept saying we need to do it. We, of course, we won't forget it. Events have meant that it's been pretty much pushed to the back of the bus. So, war in Ukraine, cost of living crisis, energy, blah blah blah. They're all nobody. You never hear a politician talking about COVID ever because it just got right off the list. There's not, the new Health Protection Agency has been established. They're supposed to be responsible for pandemic response, but their budget's been cut right back to what it was before the pandemic, so they don't really have the money to do it. There's a few things still in place, but not many. We're doing a bit of, the ONS study cut back is still operating, so we get some sense about what's going on. What about WHO and the global level? So Biden declared the pandemic over in America, which is probably true, it probably is over. I mean, they're still getting about 400 deaths a day, I think, but it's, you know, 
you know, it's largely over. Here, we're getting about, I think it's, for real COVID deaths, it's about somewhere between two and 400 deaths a week. But none of them are that pneumonia, none, zero, not a single one. And a lot of them are, almost everybody who dies is over the age of 80 or 85. And they've got lots of comorbidities and other stuff. And it'll be clotting or, you know, it's like people who get a bad flu. You know, if you're over 85 and get a bad flu, you die often. So, I mean, it's the same deal. So, so that, you know, that, that is what it is. And I suspect it'll bump along like that and it'll go up maybe a bit when we get a surge. And we'll get new variants and all that stuff. But at the moment, it doesn't look, it looks like the vaccines are very good against all the variants. All the variants we've seen, we've seen some pretty weird variants. So I'm pretty confident we'll be okay. So I'm, but, but are we better prepared for a highly pathogenic flu? Completely unprepared. Are we prepared for a Nipah virus pandemic? Completely unprepared. You know, there's just, you know, we just, the whole thing's gone back to the beginning again. Sadly. Twang, you know, the elastic band. So I, I'm just a bit surprised about how fast that happened. Just mm. slightly disappointing. Yes, indeed. So. So I'm working on two things at the moment. One is a much more systematic approach for characterizing infections, identifying pathogens early that are causing severe disease, and then putting up the red flag to say, guys, there's trouble here. So including doing genetic analysis, the kind of it's, genetic it's analysis. A, it, and it's, it's a shift. Yeah. It's, it, it didn't start this way, but it's ended up this way. And that is with the falling price of genetic sequencing, which is falling really precipitously again after five years, it looks like it's gonna be cheaper just to sequence every pathogen that's causing trouble than to try and grow it up in a tube and see what it is and all that stuff. So the, the, the idea that you can have a systematic global system for characterizing pathogens and then storing their DNA sequence in a database that allows you to see what's happening where would be a much better way to identify new pathogenic outbreaks. And much which, better. what global umbrella body will that come under? So we've been working with the G20 as the major locus for that. Um, and India is about to take over the G20 and they are very keen on developing it. It'll probably, they'll probably be nationally based because remember this is healthcare data, so you can't re it's got to be owned by each country. So the idea is to proliferate it. African CDC is involved. The uh, Tony Blair's foundation has been very involved. Gates Foundation is very involved. So there are a lot of people who are keen on seeing this exploited and developed on an international level. So that's quite, and that's all. So that's and, a surveillance program. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, no, actually it's, it started as a surveillance program for COVID to say, can we spot the new variants? It's migrated now to be a complete transformation of clinical microbiology. Because at the moment, they all have a plate and a loop and a, and a flame and a, uh, right? all that stuff. Anyway, they haven't, that hasn't changed since the middle of the 19th century. So that's all gonna be swept aside with this molecular revolution where everybody have a sequencer and you'll take a sample and put it in the sequencer and read the data. That's how you get there. So that, so that, anyway, that's one. And then the second thing I'm working on is this thing called One Shot which is, uh, during, what do we got? Yeah, that's fine. So one shot is this idea which we cooked up, which says, 
we're going to have a massively expanded manufacturing capability for vaccines and biologics. It's going to go from 5 billion, capacity of 5 billion a year to 22 billion a year. This is global again. Global. And you're going to have to then think about what you're going to use it for. You're not going to use it for COVID, are you? So you use a bit for COVID, but it's going to have to use it for something else because otherwise the manufacturing is all going to go cold, workforce laid off, nobody knows how to run the machines, and then you're right back to where you started. So you want to keep that stuff going like this. And we've also got, in almost all countries in the world, a deployment capability for adult vaccination, which we didn't have before. Vaccines, stick them in the arm, digital tools, come in and get your vaccine. Africans do it, Southeast Asians do it. You know, everybody does it. And so you've got a much better sense for the demographic, who needs vaccines for this or that. And, and so you've got the back end and you've got the front end the real question is, how do you fill the pipeline so that you keep all that stuff busy? So we've come up with this concept of one shot. We call it, and it's a bit odd because it's not one shot, it's about 20 shots. And that is that there's, a, there's been this revolution in new vaccines. So Adrian's malaria vaccine, the new TB vaccine is going into phase three, the new dengue vaccine just approved, RSV vaccines, two of them just approved, COVID, flu, new flu, which could be even better than the old flu, and then old ones like pneumococcus and HPV and all the rest of it. And then there's a whole class of other injectables, which are essentially vaccines against things like heart disease. So they control your blood pressure, they control your lipids, and you give one shot and then you go away for years. So they're like an annual vaccine. So we're promoting this idea that as a step for prevention in public health, you use that capability to just you use the deployment capability and the manufacturing capacity to make billions of these doses, and then everybody gets a call once a year. You go in and you get four shots, depending on where you are. You get, you know, if you're in Zaire, you get malaria. If you're in, if you're in Connecticut, you get HPV. You know all that stuff. So that that as a prevention strategy, that's a terrific step for the healthcare system almost anywhere. It's very good for Western countries, but also for the long mm. So we're promoting that as a, as a legacy from COVID. Uh, Tony Blair's at the general, UN General Assembly today talking about it. So it's quite, it's quite a good one. It's got a, quite, a, quite a good airing, actually. The Indians are very keen. The Indonesians were quite helpful, so they ran the last G20. So it's getting a bit of traction. I'd say it's got, it'll definitely get picked up in some places. It may not end up being global, but it will be, it'll be a helpful step. Mm, mm. Oh, well, it's good to hear that there's a so there's positive stuff, outcome. So there's, yeah, there's, so there's stuff going on, yeah. and it's all yeah. prevention-oriented, so I think that's good. Mm, mm. I think, given that you've got to go very soon, I think that's, kind Is that of, okay? that's a nice point to end on. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it gives you a bit of a sense about where the world may end up. And it may end up in a slightly better place than... Well, it's bound to end up in a better place than we were three years ago. So the question is, how much better? Is that okay?